Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monorail Radio, episode number 176. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And I have waited years. I know I said this last week when I talked about Cool Runnings, but if you thought I was patient for Cool Runnings, man, you have no idea how patient I have been to finally sit and talk about 2004's Miracle. If you thought I love Cool Runnings, listen, (laughs) I don't care if I'm burying the lead. If you've listened to this show long enough and you know who I am at this point, this will not surprise you. I am so excited. I love this film and I cannot wait to talk about it. You sound like we're about to talk about Ghostbusters. Holy cow. Let me tell you something. For a time, this was on par with Ghostbusters. There, There have been a handful of films in my life that have been on par with that film in terms of where I rank it in my overall in my overall list. Casino Royale was another one for a long time. Right. But this one was at the top of that list. It's still close to the top. No, I remember that when we started dating, you had the poster hanging in your bedroom from the movie and I had never seen it before and you freaked out that I hadn't seen it. But I mean, for me, um, my hockey movie was always... Mighty Ducks and D2. I I loved the two of those. And I had always wanted to get into hockey because I love those movies so much. But my dad never watched. My brother wouldn't know a hockey puck if it hit him in the head. So I just had no real reason to get into it until I met you. And then I I ruined your life (laughs) by introducing you to To the the New New York York Islanders. Islanders. Yes. That's right. Couldn't have been a Ranger fan no, there's one thing I will never be. You can you can accuse me of a lot of things. There are very few things that anybody could say to me that would actually offend me. That's at the top of the list. No, I love the Islanders. I probably love the Islanders more than you do at this point. You know what? You're just, I'm more psycho than you. You're not calloused <laughs> the way that I am. You're not used to this. But before you had those, because the thing is, before you had that Islander dynasty where they won their four straight Stanley Cups. That came just a couple of months after these Olympic Games. So it's kind of crazy. Now, again, it's it, maybe it's different from an Islander fan perspective because Ken Morrow played on both teams. But for so long, you would hear, especially for me, you know, my father would tell the story of Bob Nystrom, right? He would talk about that 1980, that 79-80 first uh, Stanley Cup that the Islanders won. And I feel like... Over the, like, in the grand scheme of hockey, because that dynasty happened, I feel like sometimes this story gets overlooked, and it's it's kind of unjust that it does. And I remember when I first saw the trailer for this, I was so excited that they were going to tell this story because, of course, my dad had told me the story of this, of this hockey team, and as a hockey fan, I watch all the documentaries. So, like you just said, you were not a big hockey fan. Prior to us getting together, when this movie came out in 2004, um, you know, you're less than, well, you're just over 20 years, less than 25 years from this game happening, but it's in the history books. For 
as far as you can recall, was this something that had at least been taught in a history class or a social studies class, you know, like in a tie-in with the Cold War? Like, how familiar were you with this story is my question. I really wasn't, you know, and it's interesting that you say that it sort of got buried because especially being from New York, like, you know, this was the Lake Placid Olympics. And then, like you said, it was the Dynasty Islander years. I'm surprised it wasn't a much bigger phenomenon where even me being so removed from hockey, I would have gotten, you know, sort of looped in. I mean, we were still obviously the dynasty happened before we were even born. But I remember the ranger phenomenon when I was a kid. I remember, you know, my my even though I wasn't into hockey, my grandparents had gone to a hockey game and they came back with an Islanders hat and I wore it to school once and I was just bullied mercilessly for wearing the Islanders hat. And I think that's also probably where the hockey thing got buried for me, aside from not having anyone to watch it with. I felt like I couldn't, you know, be an Islander fan. So I just sort of like completely retracted from it. Uh, But despite that, despite never having seen this film before you showed it to me, I have like weird ties and I did eventually become very familiar with the story because when I first started working in television, I was working on this show, uh, Sports Detectives, uh, which I think it aired on the Esquire Network. It wasn't yeah. it wasn't like a very widely accessible show. I think now it's on Paramount Plus. But one of the episodes they tried to it, it was about these, you know, two uh, sports buffs, historians, and they would try and go and track down all of these like famous iconic objects like Secretariat Saddlecloth or Muhammad Ali's ring, which I think he threw into a river or something. But anyway, one of them was the Jim, the Jim Craig flag from that moment, the Miracle on Ice, when it was draped over his shoulders. Uh, so I got very familiar with this game and with this story uh, just from working on that show. And then when we sat down to watch this for the podcast, um, I saw Ross Greenberg is an executive producer and I just happened to see his name in the credits. I didn't even realize this, but I did work for him uh, when I was working on Quest for the Stanley Cup for ESPN. So I'm kind of glad I didn't know this about Ross Greenberg at the time because he was so wonderful and so nice to work for. And I feel like if I knew that he was the executive producer on a Disney film, I probably would have been like shaking in my boots and not being able to like hold a conversation with him. Well, I'm glad for your sake that you were able to keep it together. So, there's a lot of things to discuss here. You know, has this become a story that's forgotten to time? You know, do you have to be somebody of a certain age to remember any of this or to be familiar with it or to even appreciate this film? That is what we are here to discuss today. This review is sponsored by the Hidden Mickey Supply Co. Products include Disney and Pixar-inspired 3D straw charms. Listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Visit Instagram or Etsy, search for Hidden make sure you're checking back on Mondays for new straw charm drops. University of Minnesota head hockey coach Herb Brooks interviews for and is named the head coach for Team USA Hockey at the 1980 Winter Olympics in Lake Placid. He builds his team using players mostly from the U as well as players from Boston University and is intent on beating the juggernaut Soviet Union at the Winter Games. They've been gold medalists for 16 years, four straight Olympic 
uh, games. He uses aggressive and at times unorthodox means of training his team. He also struggles with balancing his home life as well as checking the egos of his players and silencing the critics at the U.S. Olympic Committee who believes that he is in over his head and they don't agree with his tactics more times than not. Slowly, uh, slowly but surely, the team starts coming together and Mike Ruzioni emerges as a team leader and is soon named the captain of the team. Right before the Olympics, Team USA plays an exhibition game against the Soviets at Madison Square Garden and are beaten 10-3. to Herb flirts with the idea of benching goaltender Jim Craig, which causes temporary tension between the two of them. And it's also a means, really, of pushing Jim Craig to the next level because Herb Brooks was known for playing those head games. Herb trims his roster to 20 players and Team USA heads to Lake Placid. The team finds themselves in contention for the medal round, but need to defeat the Soviets to get there. Down 3-2 going into the third period, they storm back and Mike Ruzioni scores the game-winning goal. The team would later go on to defeat Finland and win the gold medal, becoming national heroes in the process. For a film that I have so much to talk about, the fact that I'm trimming that plot down so much, at first I thought, am I not being descript enough? But... I am going to bury the lead here a little bit. This is well known as being, in in terms of a film based on a true story, this film is well known as being one of the closest depictions to real life. So once you trim out the training montages and Herb having to cut players from the roster and kind of challenging his players and balancing egos that really is the plot of the film because you're you're more or less in many ways kind of watching a documentary play out which is really interesting when you're talking about a film that runs over two hours long well I think that's part of what makes this such an interesting watch regardless of whether or not you're a hockey fan because you know what happens. You know the outcome. So what you're looking for is the tension and the suspense building and the dialogue and the action because that's really going to be what pushes the story forward and make it interesting and exciting because, you know, like I said, you, you know exactly what's going to happen. There's no... Surprise ending. There's no twist. This is just a character driven movie. That's that's, I think, what makes it really interesting because it is so historically accurate. But you still had to give these these men character traits. And you had to get to the you needed the why and how. Exactly. Why are we doing this and how did we get here? You needed to give them motivations as characters other than, you know, these are Olympians and they wanted the gold, you know. And I think that Disney does a really spectacular job from the rip here because given it is probably the longest open ever for a Disney movie. But um, these newspaper articles, these uh, television clips that they show in the open of this film, I think does a really great job of setting the table for our jumping off point, which is seven or eight months before the games in Lake Placid. So, you know, this is spring of 1979. 
but they talk about Watergate, the death of Elvis Presley, and the Cold War, and, and building to the Cold War, and, and the tensions with the Russians. Um, I think there is, at this point in time, I think there's a younger generation, because, look, not, not that I'm trying to age us too badly, but there was, I, I remember a point in our lives where it was the USSR, it was the Soviet Union, it wasn't Russia, right. they, they, were the, they weren't Russians, they were the Soviets, so I think... We've gotten so far past that point that I feel like unless you're really being taught about the Cold War in a history class, I do think that at least from that perspective and understanding the drama leading into this, I do think a younger audience is going to be a little disconnected. I would agree with that, especially because since the Cold War was recent history, we totally glossed over it in school. I don't know, obviously, how it's being taught now, uh, but I think it was a smart choice for them to start off that way to establish what was going on in the world at the time. But also, story-wise, it gives you a reason to root for the U.S. team other than rooting against the opponents. Right. It... it Without even knowing it, you're getting invested in this team. Right, because, you know, logic would dictate that you're going to root for your own country in the Olympic Games. But there was so much more drama behind this. They needed to give you a reason to really get behind them because that's the big part about this entire thing. This transcends hockey. That I mean, really, and at the time when this did happen, this transcended hockey. This was more than just a game. But story-wise, you are sort of establishing your villain here. And then, see, th this is a mark of what great storytelling they achieved here because you go from this current events montage, a lengthy current events montage, yeah. right into the action. You know, they put you right in when Herb makes this pitch of if I am the coach of this team, this is what I'm going to do. And he talks about how they're going to study all of the movements and they're not going to use that to play defense. They're going to use it against them and they're going to attack them. Um, and you sort of don't know what to make of him because, I mean, you know, as we said, we watch hockey. You see these coaches are not really able to emote. When the team is doing well, when they're not doing well, either way. Unless unless you're taught by or coached by John Tortorella. Yeah, most of oh them. Oh, my God. Most. Mo <laughs> yeah, most of them are pretty, uh, pretty mild. Pretty stoic. Yeah. Um, so you get to see a little bit of Her Herb's personality and you yeah. have to because you have to establish the character and you see that he wants this job and nothing is going to stand in his way. Um, and then they sort of set him up to be conflicting because you see him in the boardroom, then you see a little bit of his home life. And then as soon as he gets to start working with the team, he seems very callous after they've just po they've just set up how badly he wanted this job. I mean, you're coaching an Olympic team. You're, you're not going to be passing out lollipops and saying good job boys well no and especially because something that they do establish early on 
is that Herb was cut from his Olympic team uh, right before the games started in 1960. Um, so he never got a chance to play. He was one of the final cuts. And he kind of always carried that weight. So that's a part of it. The other part of it is he wants to beat the Soviet Union. And to do that, so you got to understand something. The Soviet hockey players were were government employees. They were basically a profession. They were. They were a professional hockey team. Because, That's why they're like just a wall of a human. Well, the thing is, this was before you had players from Europe coming and playing in the National Hockey League. Right. These were all guys from Canada and the United States that made up the NHL. You Certainly the Soviets were not going to send their best players to play in the NHL because they basically monopolized them for the sole purpose of building this Olympic juggernaut. And there was a time where professional athletes did not go to the Olympics. Now, I know right now we have an Olympics where the National Hockey League has not sent their players. That's, at this point, it's, it's a COVID restriction. And I know that in the past, I think the last Olympic Games, they didn't send any uh they didn't send any any professionals over either if i'm being honest with you and i know this is very much up for debate you have a lot of players that say well just because i'm in the nhl doesn't mean i shouldn't be able to win a gold medal and represent your country which there's truth in that but at the same time the olympics were always really amateur athletes they weren't paid professionals to me, what's the difference between watching an NHL game on Thursday night versus watching the Olympics? I like the fact that we've gone back to amateur players, players that have been run out of the league, college players. I, I kind of wish that they would stick with this, especially because of stories like this. When it's not just, you know, uh, I remember when when the United States lost in overtime to Team Canada and Sidney Crosby scored the goal in overtime that beat them, other than the fact that as an Islander fan, I can't stand Sidney Crosby anyway. When Zach Parise scored the goal to tie that game late, it was exciting, but I'm like, well, but this is the same thing as watching him play for the Minnesota Wild. It's the same thing as watching him play for the New Jersey Devils, and then when Crosby scores the goal in overtime, it's I've seen him do this to the Islanders a dozen times, except now there's a gold medal. There's something more special, and I'm ranting and raving, and I don't care. There's something more special about having these amateurs come in, and I think that one of the things that this movie does really well is it plays up on how special that moment was, not just from a social commentary side, which, don't get me wrong, is three quarters of the film, but from a pure sports perspective. This is what a team is built on. And, And Herb, in this meeting that you're referencing at the beginning of the film, says all-star teams fail because they rely on the individual. I'm going to build an actual team that's going to work together. So, yeah, from the jump, this is an amazing introduction to this character. Um, and I think that other than... Ex- other than it, 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 it's tenfold, right? Because like, other than fleshing out the character, you're basically laying out the entire movie just in that speech alone. Right. No, and that that's where I'm saying they're doing such a good job of of trying to balance him out because he 
as our main character, we have to like him. But some of the things that he says and does when he's being hard on the team and being so cutthroat, you don't necessarily, you can't really sympathize with that because he is very hard on them at times. Well, and this is the bigger picture, though. I do sort of sympathize with him because of all of the things that I just laid out and and really everything that he discusses in that speech. You're taking a group of teenagers who mostly don't get along, mind you, Mm -hmm. because he's building players between Minnesota and Boston who already have an ice hockey rivalry. Yes. You're forcing them into this blender to be a team. There is high tension. So you're taking you're taking a, a group of teenagers who don't get along and putting them up against professional athletes. You have to callous them. I love that they made that choice, though, to bring us in before this team is built. Because if you think of something, and maybe this isn't a fair comparison, because this is obviously a real event, but when you do compare it to something like Mighty Ducks, we get character first. It's the ragtag bunch, and then we meet the coach who has to make them work as a unit. Here... We know the coach has the drive and ambition to do this. We're with him and his POV first. And now you have all of these amazing hockey players that don't get along. So we're we're learning about their characters as we go. And I think that that was so interesting that as an audience, we get to witness this team being built but also to see that it wasn't just like, oh, we all made the Olympic team and we're going to be a band of brothers now. It didn't start out that way at all. No, the tension is palpable. And this is a credit to the acting, the directing, and the screenwriting because that Colorado Springs tryout and every, you know, and really what happens in the days that follow. First off, in ter- from a sports perspective... This is the best pure hockey you've ever seen in cinema. Yes. I D3 by far is the worst of the Mighty Duck movies and it's not even close. But for a time, the hockey shot in that movie, you'd say was maybe some of the best hockey you'd ever seen on screen. This surpasses that tenfold. It tonally it feels so different than the rest of the film. Like, it it really does feel like you're watching a game just shot beautifully. Yeah, and it's just... But but to your point, it's so interesting and so different and unique because the cinematography's great, but other than just showing us your run-of-the-mill training montage, you're creating and you're fleshing out all of this tension and aggression, which is kind of easy to do when you're making a hockey film. But the fact that they use it for story and not just, you know, not not just to pass time. You know what I'm saying? Because these, these training montages, we've talked about them in sports films, they always just work to show passage of time. And in passage of time... You know, your main character, your hero, they get stronger, they get faster, they get better, they're defying the odds. But here it's so different. It's so unique here that other than doing that, you're just fleshing out all of these tensions as you build this team. Yes, and I love that they start with a score to settle between, and forgive me because I'm going to botch this every time. 
O'Callaghan and McClanahan. Yeah. All right. I got one. <laughs> Let's hope I can keep that up through the rest of this episode, because this is something that they keep going back to is these two. They were on rival teams for a national championship. McClanahan threw a dirty hit on O'Callaghan. Uh, so now they have to figure out a way to work together. And, you know, you would think it more older, more mature players would would put everything aside and say, you know, we're here for the Olympics. Let's work together. But these are, you know, to your point, some hot headed teenagers and they're not ready to bury the hatchet yet. And I love that scene where they drop the gloves and they fight and Herb lets them go. Yeah, because, you know, Craig Patrick wants to break them up, the assistant coach and Herb goes, no, let him go. Let him let them get this out of their system now. Bury it now. And he and he basically tells them that we this is not what we're here to do. We're not here to settle old scores. We're here to win a gold medal. We're here to represent your country. And it's such a Herb thing to do. And I love that we get to see it play out. And I also love that then he hands out those the tests. tests. Yeah. And the one guy who won't take the test is Jim Craig. And I love the fact that Jim Craig does not take the test. Well, I think that's the whole thing, right? The test is a test. Exactly. And... You know, it comes back later when he pulls Jim Craig from that when he after that drubbing that the USA took from the Soviets, that 10-3 at the Garden. And he is now toying with the idea of starting Steve Janisak instead. He says, you know, uh, Jim Craig says to him, is this because I didn't take your test? Because I'll take your test. And Herb says, I want to see the guy in net that wouldn't take my test. Yes, that I mean, as far as Herb's character goes, I thought that's what they were trying to do by showing him passing out the test and and focusing on Jim not taking it. But you do get that confirmation later in the film that the whole time it was just a test. And I love that they show how Herb is not just coaching them physically, that he's also coaching them mentally. And I think that that's true of any sport it's got to be mind over matter otherwise you're never going to get very far but to your point you've got to take down this juggernaut you have to be every single person on that team has to be mentally solid to accomplish this so I think he was trying to figure out early on before he started really making cuts who was actually going to have the chops to back it up? Because this is just not, it's not only about the skill here. It's about can you actually handle trying to take down this giant? And right. then he goes so far in the other direction, the team sort of starts to alienate him. And when they're talking to the assistant coach, he makes the point of if they all hate him, they'll stop hating each other. Yeah. And that was part of his coaching tactic, which I thought was really interesting. I love that he did it. It's You're right. It's an interesting... And they said it was a change from him. He had never done anything like that before, but it totally made sense that he would take the heat. And he tells them, you know, from the jump, I'm not here to be your friend. If you want a friend, talk to Coach Patrick or the doc. Um, that's not me. It's not what I'm here to do. So, again, the head games and callousing them, but making him their adversary and not making themselves the adversary as a team building exercise is it's brilliant. It is completely brilliant. 
Now, that's also being balanced up against his home life because he is all about these games. He's all about beating the Soviets, getting to the medal round. And his wife, Patty, is not really supportive of him. She's supportive when he gets the job, but she's not really supportive of the amount of time that he's putting into preparing for these games. Um, It seemed a little odd, given what's at stake. But the reality of the situation is his wife, in real life, had absolutely no interest in hockey. You want to talk about opposites attract. No, and I think that they did a good job of peppering that in because, and that's not something that I knew that was true to life, but story-wise, you can see where they sprinkled her in as the antagonist from the jump, from when we first meet her, because Herb just had this huge meeting. He doesn't know if he has the job yet, and she's like, okay, well, we're having a costume party because that's what's going on at home, and he gets the phone call, and she's very excited and happy for him in the moment, but then it's right back to the party. And then as he starts working these longer hours and then he's bringing his work home with him, it's okay, well, I'm picking up the kids at this time. I need you to go get this time. I I need you to go get the other kid from whatever activity it is. Right. And he's like, I can't. And instead of understanding that he has this, you know, very high profile job, it's a temporary job. It's not going to go on forever. Um, instead of supporting him, just being like, all right, I got the kids. Don't worry. She starts giving him a hard time about it. And then you see it come back around. Oh, you're never home. You're never home. Like, you didn't marry a person with a nine to five job. Even when he was coaching, not at the Olympic level, like, what did you think was going to happen? She kind of got annoying as a character for me a little bit. Yeah, I was going to say... I think that if there's any issue with the film at all, I think they may have leaned into this a little too much. Yes. Because they make her borderline dislikable. Because I understand they're trying to... They're trying to develop a a subplot where it's not just about hockey, it's also about him being a family man. Here's the thing. The more I watch this movie, when I first saw this movie, I thought this is a movie about the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team. And I thought that for a long time. And I think part of it comes with maturing. But more recently, I've come to realize this movie is not about the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team. It's about Herb Brooks. Yeah, it is a biopic. So they're trying to develop drama that was realistically there. But I think this is the one instance in the film where they're guilty of being heavy-handed when it when it when it's regarding anything, and because they don't really go too heavy-handed with the sports cliches, so they kind of do that here, and I think that it just makes her dislikable because as you're watching this, it's so irrational that you as the spouse would not be supportive of what he's doing other than the fact that you're trying to win a gold medal for your country at the Olympics. 
you are trying to make a social commentary statement and you are carrying the entire country on your shoulders when you know you have to play these guys. At that level, she should have been more interested, even if she doesn't like hockey at all. It it just seems like logic would dictate that you would be that you would be understanding of the amount of time that this is going to take. I think the issue is that they didn't necessarily develop her as her own character enough so much as they used her as a plot device. Because if you think about when she keeps popping back up, the team has sort of realized that they're not going to win Herb over now. They are starting to gel as a unit. Things are going good with them. You have the formation of the cone headline. Uh, as they're making more and more cuts, you see that they're being hurt, losing some players that they really care about. Uh, you have that amazing moment where um, they take the stand and say, we're a family now yeah. uh, before they're getting on the bus. Right. Um, so you did need some sort of conflict because things are going well with the team. And it's not enough just to show them, show a couple of losses game wise. Right. Because they bring in the late player. Because Herb wants to get the best out of these guys. Really, he's looking to push a Ruzioni. Um, And he's playing head games with them because he just wants to win so bad. And he wants to get the most out of them. And then you do get a little bit more of those traditional training montages. But the scene that, other than the Miracle on Ice itself, the scene that everybody talks about in this movie. Again. 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 Again, you'd think this was fabricated for film. This actually happened. I mean, and, and I really feel like that was all in service of pushing Aruzioni too. I mean, yes, it was for the sake of, of making them work for it and making them prove themselves before these final rounds of cuts and, and showing who really wanted it. But Aruzioni was the one to figure it out to say that I play for you on Team USA. Not I'm from Boston, I'm from Minnesota, I'm from here, I'm from there. And we're playing as a unit. It's no, we are Team USA. And that it's such it, it's such a great moment for the sport, but it's such a great moment for the film too. It it's is such a it's such a character defining moment. I remember that was like one of the big moments in the trailer. In the initial trailer for this film, that was one of the biggest moments. I remember that was the thing that stuck most with me from the first time that we watched it. It's a brutal scene. It's 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 exhausting just to watch it. Uh but that moment of victory when when Aruzioni figures it out, it's it's such a great payoff. Right. And obviously, it's moments like that that led to him being named captain of that team. The hardest scene in this film by far is when they have to cut Ralph Cox. Yes. Even though you know it's coming, it's still so emotional. Because he was legitimately the last player cut from that team. And you knew how hard it hit Herb to do that because Herb was doing to Ralph what somebody else had done to him. And it's such a powerful scene. And Kurt Russell does such an incredible job in that scene. Um, 
it's no matter how many times you see it, it's still one of it's the deepest cut and it's one of the hardest scenes to get through in the movie because because Ralph Cox knows he's about to be cut. And this does come after the we are family scene. Exactly. And it's, it was it's tough. brutal. It is completely brutal. Now we get to the Olympics and Herb is looking to push the boys. He's looking to get that extra gear out of them. And Rob McClanahan is his target. And he knows that he can play those games with McClanahan because he coached him in Minnesota. Right. And he had an upper leg contusion. He can barely walk. And Herb calls him out and plays the head game. And it was in the same thing. Um, and you saw it in the trailer where he goes, I thought you were a hockey player. And he's, I am a hockey player. You saw that in the trailer to the point where it, I don't want to say it became, it's, it's not a joke, but I think at times it kind of became one of those lines that people just associated with the movie. I feel like if there's any moment that you can call a cliche, it's probably that one. But otherwise this film av- avoids all of the sports movie cliches. Yeah. And Herb walks out and goes, you think that'll get him started? And Craig Patrick goes, yeah, it will. Um, and that really is kind of what pushes them into the next level and gets them prepared for this game against the Soviets. Um, so now we go back to him. Now his whole family's in Lake Placid. Right. And he has this moment with Patty at the outdoor ice skating rink and they're sipping hot chocolate. And there, I always kind of felt like this scene was unnecessary. I understand, again, you're trying to show that he is justifying his behavior to his family and he's trying to balance it out. The scene is fine, but it, to me, it doesn't really do anything to push the movie forward. But maybe that's because I already know how this film's going to end. I mean, you kind of have to give her a moment other than just sitting in the stands and cheering him on. You you need to get her back on his side. Would it have worked better if they had spent a little bit more time fleshing out her as a character in the film? Because now it kind of just seems like she's in it because, well, we're sitting in Lake Placid. Right, and your family gets, you know, tickets to come and see. Um, I don't know necessarily because you kind of, regardless of her character, you, you have to have the makeup no matter what. But I feel like this was probably their way of avoiding the cliche of she showed up in the stands to support him. It was way better than a, he didn't know she was coming. And then when they won, he got to look up and there she was. Yeah, which you've seen in a hundred sports movies. More or less every single one. Right. Um, Let's talk about the scene in the locker room. Right before the game against the Soviets. Talking again about the history you have with this film. My senior year of high school, I was in the video class. I took video throughout high school. And one of our, it wasn't our final project because our final project was a completed film. But one of your, like, not a group project, but like one of your individual final projects was you had to pick a scene in a film that you felt 
without showing anything else in the movie prior or after, define the entire film. Basically, you were finding a perfect scene. This was the scene that I chose in my video class to show and explain why it is a most perfect film. And it's a most perfect scene. And why this scene almost defines the entire movie. Because, interesting trivia fact, the card, the roster card Mm -hmm. that Kurt Russell is holding in his hand is the actual roster card that Herb Brooks wrote out at the 1980 U.S. Olympics. Oh, that is very cool. It's the real card. I'm surprised they let them have it for production. They didn't want to preserve that more. Disney gets what Disney wants, you know. <laughs> um, but what I love... That's true. I guess if JFAV was able to break out that that Jungle Book one more time. What I love so much about the scene is as he walks in to the locker room and the team, they're all sitting in their lockers and he walks into the middle of the room and the camera sort of zooms out as it pans and you have the carpet is the logo from those Olympic games. It made everything in that moment so real. Even though it was real, even though you know they're going to win the game, the way that it's shot and the way that Kurt Russell carries that entire scene, it makes the whole thing come to life. That was a smart choice to pick that one Not only because it's a great scene, but if the assignment was without any other context, you have to show why it's a perfect movie. Uh, You're establishing your setting because it has that shot of the Olympic rings. Yeah. So good on you for that. Um, But as far as the scene goes... Yeah, my teacher thought so too. (laughs) Um, As far as the scene goes, though... This is such a great character moment, and it's just such great dialogue. Uh, The the way that it's written in paper, I mean, obviously they're they're pulling from real life, but just the way that it's delivered, the pacing, the whole thing is just great. And this is where you finally get to see Herb as a person. I feel more so than any other point in this movie not just showing his home life not just showing how badly he wanted the job this is where you get to see him as a hockey fan and he's not browbeating the guys he's not even making so much of an emotional uh, a motivational speech as he is just showing that he's got complete faith in them I think it's just more of a moment where they're equals and everything else just sort of fades away. The relationship between coach and player speaking to the bigger picture, as far as what is going on in the world at the time, it just breaks down to a person trying to achieve their goal. It's just so good. The score is unbelievable. When they come out of that locker room and they're tapping those thousands of telegrams from just people that are wishing them the best of luck and they're tapping them on the wall as they walk through that tunnel to take the ice. This this scene carries so much power and it all works harmoniously to get you to the start of this game. And I, to this day, no matter how many times I've seen this movie, I can't get over how incredible the pacing is as they flesh this game out. 
this is what this film does so well. Even though you know what's going to happen, it's still intense and it's still suspenseful. It's amazing to me that despite the fact that you know the outcome, how edge of your seat you are when you watch this movie. Even when you rewatch it. I, when I saw this movie for the first time, we went, my friend's father picked us up. We were in high school. None of us had a driver's. We had, we had like learner's permit, but like you didn't have the full driver's license yet. Right. And you couldn't have like a certain amount of people in the car. I think it had to be like you and a licensed driver. Yeah. So my friend's father picked us up and drove us to the closest movie theater because we're all hockey fans. And we saw like a three o'clock showing. Like we barely made the start of the movie. Um, And I remember two things. And I'll never forget them. My, My heart was pounding out of my chest this entire game. And, and it still gets me now, though not as much as it did the first time I saw it, because Al Michaels re-recorded his play-by-play for the game, except for when they get to that last 10 seconds, and they fade it from his re-recorded dialogue into the original ABC broadcast, where he exclaims, do you believe in miracles? Yes. It was the first time... It, it was the first of maybe two or three times in my life, but it was definitely the first time I cried during a movie. Wow. In a movie theater. And I, it still gets me every time, every time I see it. Not as bad. Now I'm just kind of like, oh, what a moment. But it was the first time I, like, and didn't care that I was 17 years old hanging out with my buddies. It was the first time I actually cried at a movie. It didn't bring me to tears, but you definitely feel that intensity, that edge of your seat, that white knuckle. It it makes me feel like I am watching a live game. I just don't yell as much. Yeah, I'm I'm not shy about voicing my opinion during any sporting event, but uh, much less during a hockey game. Yeah, it's um, and you know what? Like, I kind of don't even mind that after that, it's a voiceover and Herb's like, and then we went on to come from behind again to beat Finland for the gold medal. I know some people were like, oh, so that's it? It's like winning the gold medal was not the biggest story here. It was beating the Soviets and and what it meant for the United States. This group of teenagers put a country on their shoulders. The thing is, again, and it goes back to what I said before, I think the unfortunate thing about this is as we get, and I'm listen. I don't want to go back to the Cold War, okay? So I'm not <laughs> suggesting that. But as the further away you get from it, I think the less people are reacting to it as as these the generations are getting younger and younger and younger. I don't. I don't. I just don't think. I think the movie does as good a job as it can putting putting the weight on the shoulder of this team. But I think that if you don't remember, even for us what it was like to live even in the tail end of those times. I just don't think you understand the weight that it carries. Right. But I also think that that makes for better storytelling because I think if you're not familiar with the history of it, you think that Russia was the last game that thought that got them the gold. And that's not the case at all. Story-wise, that is the climax of the film. You need that to move your story forward. And because this is so true to life, 
that's why you get that voiceover at the end because you want to show what really did happen. But as far as our story goes, it was all about that final game or not the final game, but that final moment against Russia. That's the story that we're telling. And I think that that's sort of what where you do need to separate this film from real life to appreciate how they told the story. And I just love that juxtaposition of this massive celebration in the arena and Herb just goes to have a private moment. And that's where, to your point before, this is really about him. Yeah. And that's why they just focus on him having his own little celebration while everybody else is losing their minds. Let's talk about the cast here, starting with Kurt Russell, who plays Herb Brooks. He looks just like him. God, if he doesn't sound like him. And you know what? The fact that, forget the fact that he didn't win anything. The fact that he doesn't even get a nomination. That's a crime. Is a travesty. And I think that, frankly, I think it's because it's a sports film. Even though it's sort of a biopic about him, at the end of the day, it's a sports film. And I think that, with the exception of Rocky that one best picture, I feel like you just have a lot of people that are up on their high horse and they don't take these films seriously. And I think that's partly what, well, not partly, I think that's the entire reason why he didn't get nominated. I would agree. And it's so unfair because this was like the role of a lifetime for him until he got to play Santa Claus in Christmas Chronicles. And if you haven't seen that yet, go jump on Netflix because it's so worth it. Uh, but it, it's a shame, too, because he's got such a great history with Disney that this wasn't the one to do it for him. He was in Fox and the Hound very early on in his career. Now he's Guardians of the Galaxy. Like, you know, you, you want to they obviously like him. You want to see that pay off. And I think he was a child actor in the computer war tennis shoes, too. Like he has been with Disney for, for a long so time. Long. Um, but I mean. Like I said, it, it's just it's so criminal that he doesn't even get a nomination, much less the award. But it is what it is at this point. Patricia Clarkson plays Patty Brooks. I like Patricia Clarkson. And Patty Brooks really didn't have any interest in hockey. We know that. It's just that I'm this is the only issue I have with this movie is I just don't know if they went about her the right way. There's one, there's, there's, it's one thing to show that she doesn't have interest in hockey and she's getting a little frustrated with him not being around, but it's a completely other thing to make a character borderline dislikable. And that's kind of just what they did here. And it's, it's not a commentary on Patricia Clarkson. She did just fine. It's more kind of just the stance on the character I disagree I don't think that she's borderline dislikable I I think she is an unlikable character and I'm hoping that this film didn't do a disservice to the real person well let's just say there was no backlash due to the performance so we'll just leave it like that I mean Patricia Clarkson did an excellent job because I don't want to say you love to hate her I think that's going a bit too far but um she 
she made her an antagonist. She did exactly what was being asked of her because she's given her a hard time. And then, you know, you have that moment at the end where like she doesn't even run down to kiss him after. And maybe that that plays into he's a coach. They don't want to show that much emotion. But the fact that she didn't even nobody was blocking them. She could have gotten to him very easily just to congratulate him. And instead, she stays up in the stands and just sort of. Not even shrugs. waves. She <laughs> shrugs. Right. It's so anticlimactic in that moment. Uh, Noah Emmerich plays Craig Patrick. Um, I thought he did a really good job with the role. I like having Craig Patrick there. It's sort of the the yin and the yang when it comes to the coaching. Um, I think in the again scene where you see, because Craig was a player, you know, played for her, Brooks. So I think it hurts him as a human being to put the team through that, but it hurts because he knows as a player how demanding that must be. And obviously he wouldn't want to go through it himself. To me, that's basically his entire performance is in that scene. And it's really, really well done. I completely agree because it's not just that he doesn't want to put the players through it, but he knows if he doesn't blow that whistle, Herb's going to kick him right out. Yeah. He will find a new assistant coach. Uh, but I, I think he does such a great job in that moment because the hesitation and it's like the look in his eyes, are you going to stand up to her? No, you're not. And then he'll blow it again. Uh, they, they drag it out just enough. It's great. I want to talk about only a couple of the players here because there's just so many of them. I want to talk about the three that were really focused on the whole film, starting with Jack O'Callaghan played by Michael Mantenuto, um, you know, he's a hothead, but when he's injured and he misses most of the games, you know, you're in pain for him because you know how much it means for him to be there. And I think that Michael Mantenuto did a spectacular job with the role. Unfortunately, he's no longer with us, but I think that as you kind of hate to call him a secondary character, but. Between Micah Ruzioni and Jim Craig and Herb and Patty and Craig Patch, you know, it's he kind of does become a secondary character, but he, he carries so much of the film at the same time. He's so good. He's a scene stealer for sure. What the only thing that I don't like is that you don't see him take the hit. They just go back to the locker room where he's injured. And I feel like that kind of does a disservice to the moment. Because you don't really know what happened. It seemingly comes out of nowhere. I mean, you know that Russia is pummeling them at this point. But I wish we had seen it play out rather than just, oh, he's he's down for the count. He almost falls victim to what they did with Patricia here because now it seems like you're using him as a plot device and not a fully formed character. Sure. That makes sense. Eddie Cahill plays Jim Craig. Um, and he was absolutely spectacular. Um, I felt that at times where you needed him to be lighthearted, he did it. I think at times where you needed him to be hard on himself, he did it. And in his moments where he has tension with Kurt Russell, the two of them just do such a great job playing off of each other that he was a scene stealer as well. He did a lot of work in the early 90s, like Charmed, Felicity, Law and Order, Dawson's Creek, you know, like he's got all those major titles, but it's such a shame that you don't see him do more now because I think he's such a talented actor. I think, uh, I mean, 
he looks like Jim Craig. Uh, but more than that, just the way that he he embodies this player who's got the weight of the team on his shoulders. And to your point, in those moments with Herb, I, he just gives such an incredible performance. It's a shame that, you know, he doesn't have as many accolades as he should. Patrick O'Brien Dempsey plays the Italian Michael Ruzioni. Um, <laughs> but... He, but he does, jokingly aside, he does look just like him. And uh, for a guy that is going to be the captain of the team, he's going to be, while while Jim Craig carries the weight of the team, Mike Ruzioni is the face of the team. Mm -hmm. He's such an easy character to root for, which is kind of crazy. They're real people. Um, but he was such an easy person to root for. And I think that the way that Patrick O'Brien Dempsey plays him, I think the life that he gives him, I think the softness that he gives him, it makes it so easy for you to get behind him. It makes sense, based on the way that he portrays him, that he would be named the captain of this team. For sure. And I think that that also comes from when uh, they they brought on the other player. Yeah. That's why you're rooting for him, because he's about to have it all taken away, but you know he can do it and he becomes even more likable when you realize that Herb was messing with him the entire time. Yeah. Final thoughts. I'll go first because I feel like this is probably going to be slightly more brief than your final synopsis. Uh, I absolutely love this movie. I enjoy it more every single time that I watch it. That's not to say that I ever dislike it, but the more you watch it, the more things that you notice. I think the first couple of viewings, because you know what's going to happen, you're just sort of watching it unfold. And then the more you go through it, the more there is to sort of, the more layers there are to peel back as far as the characters and story go. Um, the score is great. We talked a little bit about that. We didn't really talk about the costumes, which I think is very simple because it's hockey jerseys, obviously, but you know, you're used to seeing what they look like now. They did have to get it period accurate. The goalie mask was entirely different. The yeah. helmets were entirely different. Uh, so that was something that I noticed. I thought they did a great job with. Um, but yeah, I, I think the testament to how good this film is, is that no matter how much you know about the history of it, even though you know what's going to happen, uh, it's just such a suspenseful watch uh and you know your your soul gets crushed in all the right places and your heart soars in all the right places and you feel that way every time you watch it it's i yeah i i think i'm gonna give this one a perfect so am i and that shouldn't surprise anybody i'm going back to back perfects i don't think i've ever done that on this show um here's the thing with this movie i talked last week about where films rank in terms of all-time great sports films, I think this is, num for me personally, I think it's number four. Um, I, I think Slapshot, it, Slapshot is the greatest sports movie of all time. Fight me on it. Uh, word of advice, don't watch that with younger kids, but highly recommend watching that because a woman wrote it. Yeah, and if that'll blow your mind. Just listening to that dialogue. She's my hero. That's the greatest sports film of all time. Caddyshack is right behind it. I think Rocky is number three. I think Rocky has just become 
like I, I think it's become a satire of itself over time just because everybody's got to yell Adrian and jump to the, you know, run the steps in Philadelphia. But you can't look past the fact that it, it, it did win Best Picture and it's an incredible film. You didn't need like seven or eight of them, but I mean, it really is a great film. And that's why I feel like it's the butt of the joke now. You're right. It is an incredible movie. And it shouldn't be, but it is. And then I think it's this, and then I think it's Cool Runnings. So that would lead me to conclude that this is not only one of the best sports... Well, it is the best sports movie Disney ever made. I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's one of the best films they've ever made, period. Because unlike Cool Runnings, where they played with the story a little bit, Unlike Invincible, where they played with the story a lot. Unlike Remember the Titans, which is a complete work of fiction at this point. This was a true story. You know how it ends. You're at the edge of your seat the entire time. The performances are incredible. And it's almost completely accurate. They really didn't have to change much. Are there imperfections? Yeah. They're imperfections. They're wearing CCM helmets instead of Coho helmets. That's not enough for me to sit there and pound the film. They're playing on an NHL ice surface instead of an international ice surface. Again, it's not enough for me to pound the film. I think that for the fact that you... I have often said, if you're going to make a film based on a true story, that means the story was good enough at its own and it has its own merits where you believe it's worth telling the story. This, by far, is the instance where that statement never rings truer. I do think the cinematography's great, the costume's great, the score is great, the acting's great, the screenwriting is great. It doesn't fall victim to all of the sports cliches that most other films fall victim to, and that's why, for me, it's, it's at the top of the Disney sports list, and it's towards the top of the Disney list. And we're interested in knowing what you have to say about 2004's Miracle. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Monoreal Radio. Or you can email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. Coming out of the break, I'm going to play something that I never thought would see the light of day. It is from 17 years ago. I'm 18 years old at the time. I'm in high school interviewing Steve Janisak from the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team. As if we all needed further proof that you absolutely love this movie. I've not even heard this interview yet. I cleaned it up. It still sounds good. But just bear in mind, folks, this was long before the age of the digital recorder. This was on a cassette tape. Okay. I know I'm dating myself, but it was on a cassette tape. So just bear that in mind when you hear this. So we've got that coming out of the break as well as news of the week and a contest winner. But first, we are going to take that break. If you're thinking of taking a Disney trip this year, whether it's Walt Disney World in Florida, Disneyland in California, a Disney cruise, or Olani in Hawaii, get in touch with me for a free quote. I would love to help you plan a trip for you and your family. Or even if you've already booked, reach out. I want to help get you the best deal possible. You can contact me on any of the Monoreal Radio social media outlets or shoot me an email at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at magicalvacationplanner.com. 
Hey guys, it's Sean. Uh, I'm actually uh, in Northport High School right now, my school, and uh, beside me today is a very special guest, Steve Janisak from the 1980 U.S. Olympic Hockey Team. How are you doing today? Doing very good. Thank you very much for uh, for inviting me here. Yeah, <laughs> thank you for uh, for coming today. Um, you came out, you know, you played, I believe you said four years for for uh, Herb Brooks for the University of Minnesota. I mean, what what kind of experience was that? I, I ended up playing four years for him at Minnesota, fifth year with the Olympic team, uh, five years in total. I have the emotional scars to prove it. Uh, it was an incredible experience. The man taught me more about myself. I had a bigger impact on my life than anybody outside of my parents. Right. Now, you won a number of uh, tournaments and championships and medals with him. We saw those today. I mean, before even going to the Olympics, you know, you start gradually levels and levels and levels winning those national titles that must have been the most amazing feeling you had had by that at that point in time it was it was an incredible experience uh we had we had an excellent team in 1979 uh core group of those guys ended up being core group for the 1980 team but uh yeah it was, uh, that particular year was a struggle all the way through we ended up losing the western collegiate hockey association championship in the final game and uh we ended up winning the NCAA a couple of weeks later. Okay. Now, aside from the fact that you had played with Herb for so many years, how how did you know that you were getting invited to the uh, to the event in Colorado Springs? I mean, and who made the phone call? What was that like getting that call? Well, they they invited 80 players. Uh, ended up be eight goaltenders uh, to National Sports Festival. Uh, got a letter in uh, in the early spring in 1979 with the invitation. I had been to the National Sports Festival in 1978, so there was a little bit of an expectation that uh, that we would go back and then with the NCAA victory, there's kind of an expectation there. But, yeah, it was still exciting when you get the letter. Yeah, and, I mean, going into Lake Placid, I mean, Realistically, what kind of chance did you did you assume you would you had against against all these teams, especially especially the Russians who had come out, you know, for I think I believe it was the past four Olympics and come out and taken the gold medal. Well, they had actually won all the way since 1960 for 20 years. Uh, they they had won. Uh, I think we were picked to finish sixth, fifth or sixth uh, overall. I mean, there was there was not a big expectation. Uh, outside of the guy, I have to underscore outside of the guys on the team, there was not a big expectation about our performance. Right. right. And then you come out, and you guys make it to Lake Placid, and now it's, I believe it was February 23rd. February 23rd, uh, 22nd or 23rd? Right. 22nd. 22nd. Yeah. So there you are. You're in Lake Placid. And you know you have all the telegrams uh, on the wall, and then you step out, and it's like a whole new world. There are the Russians on the ice with you guys again. After you guys had lost 10 to 3 at Madison Square Garden only a few weeks prior. Yeah, it was uh, it was an incredible uh, time to be going back out against. I mean, talk about the telegrams. Uh, we plastered a whole runway between the locker room and the entrance to the ice with well wishes, with good wishes from people all over the United States. Uh, and you know, now you go out and play them. One game, one game shot, and he, you know, got a chance. Right. And then, you know, the feeling of just beating them, having the clock run down. I mean, Mike Rooney, uh, Ruzioni scores the goal with exactly uh, 10 minutes left. And I remember you said that that 10 minutes felt like 10 years, like an eternity. So, I mean, what was it like after it had all been counting down? Once you're starting, there's eight minutes, five minutes, two minutes, one minute, 30 seconds. It wasn't, and, and literally, what you, what you just described, as, as you're counting that down, I'm thinking to myself, you know, you, it wasn't a, a feeling of, of finality. 
until it was until it was zero. I mean, literally, there were five seconds left to go, and there was still that same level of concern that this could all come unraveled. And once that's it, once the horn goes off, there's there's no time left. It's four to three. What was that like? You know what? And actually, I'm thinking about this because Kenny Dryden catches it right at the end. If you listen to the the back and forth between L. Michaels and Ken Dryden, L. Michaels is counting it down. He gets to I think about three seconds. Kenny Dryden, you hear him in the background says, "It's over," and that you you knew it right. It's like you just exploded. I think you had guys coming over the bench with about three seconds left to go because the puck was tied up along the boards. There was no way that you could get it out. It was, it, I don't know. I, I've never been let out of prison, okay? But it's, it was that feeling. It was like uh, incredible euphoria. Yeah. And then, you know, you had, you had said that when you had received your gold medal, you know, the Olympics in 1980 in Lake Placid was a lot more than just, uh, than just a hockey game. I know that there are some listeners out there that don't know the, uh, the personal side of other things that had happened in Lake Placid, so if you wouldn't mind explaining what else had happened out there. Well, you had, in, in 1980, you had the whole um, Afghanistan, Russians had invaded in Afghanistan, the uh, embassy in Iran had been taken over. Uh, in general, you had kind of economic stagflation, um, so you had you basically had the United States that was not feeling very good about itself and its position in the world. Yeah. And here you had this group of 20 guys kind of came out of nowhere and helped light a little spark for the country. Yeah, and I know you, so you had said you met your wife out there, so it was a lot more than just a gold medal. Uh, for me, yeah. It was the uh, best thing that ever happened to me. She probably saved my life. Um, uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm the luckiest guy. I think I'm the luckiest guy in that team. Yeah, and then the movie Miracle comes out, and you know a lot of people are questioning how accurate this, the movie is to the actual events. And you were really there, you know, again, again, again. I mean, all those things, and a lot of people were questioning. I mean, how accurate was the film to the actual events in 1980? Movie, movie is very, very accurate in portraying the the emotions and portraying the the emotional aspects of what came together for these guys. To, to perform the way they did. There, you know, it's Hollywood. There are some, there's some artistic license taken. But I'll tell you this, you watch Kurt Russell, okay? You are, you are effectively watching Herb Brooks. I've never had such an appreciation for the, for the job of professional acting as I did watching Russell play Brooks, because he captures the character exactly right. And I know next week coming up, it's the 25th anniversary. What is it like looking back now on all that's happened within the past 25 years and, and looking ahead into the future of professional hockey? Well, it's kind of interesting because in some of the global aspects, I mean, we're right back, we're, we're you know, at a war in, in Iraq. They're talking about hammering down on Iran. And it's, it's some things have come back around to, to you know, back around to point one again. Um, you know, there, there are other aspects, though. I think the United States feels a lot better about itself these days, and uh, I know just talking to the guys, talking to a number of them yesterday, uh, everybody's really excited to be going back up there and, and you know, reflecting on you know, 25 years. 25 years just went by so fast. And just one last question: there's a there's a part in the film where Aruzioni and I think it was Jack O'Callaghan, they're looking at the list of guys who had made it to uh, to the event, and they noticed one guy wasn't there, and um, Jimmy Craig had asked why, and OC went, you know, there's, there's 30,000 reasons sitting in his New York bank account. And, that, and he said $30,000 for signing bonus, that's insane. Looking back on that and now looking at what there is right now, I mean, do you think that even back then there was some fault and that's why we're having the problems that we're having in the NHL right now? Well, you know, no, actually, it's, it's interesting because Joey Mullins signed with the, with the Rangers uh, 
$30,000 was a big signing bonus at the time. Sounds tiny today, but uh, Jack O'Callaghan, interestingly enough, had one of the best quotes I've read about this recent conflict, said, you know, people ought to step back and become more humble about what this is all about. Uh, what, what's going on now is all about control of the game. Who controls the game? The owners or the players? It's all about control. It's all about power. Uh, at the end of the day, I think OC hit it best. It, both sides ought to step back, be very humble about what they have and about what the game has given them, and, and find a way to bring that game back to the back to the fans. Okay. Well, thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure thank meeting you. with you today. Thank right. you. Wow, it is awesome that you hung on to that. The only thing that's not awesome about it is my very thick Long Island accent. That's the only thing about it that's not awesome. Yeah, this is one place that you don't want to sound like a local. I mean, look, this was internet radio. This was like pre-podcasting, and it was before I had done like the real radio training. It was very novice, but I'm glad that that tape saw the outside of my desk drawer because I never thought it would ever see the light of day again. So I'm glad I was able to bring it to bring it out and to, and to share that with everybody. News of the Week is brought to you by Karma and Kismet Design. If you're looking for media kits or graphic design, especially if you are a Disney content creator, Kelly has you covered, plus listeners of the show get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Be sure to see everything that she has to offer at karmaandkismetdesigns.com. That's karma, the letter N, kismetdesigns.com. We have a lot of news this week, starting with some casting. There were some casting announcements for Disney Plus that have been made in the last couple of days, starting with Rita Ora, who is a British pop singer. She has been cast in the Beauty and the Beast prequel series that has gone to that that is going to Disney Plus. I don't I, I will admittedly say I don't know much about her. But they say that her character is going to be this dark, mysterious sort of character. So maybe Agatha? Maybe? I, I would hope. I would like to explore that a little more so that we get some sort of reason as to why she is in the woods. I don't need a reason as to why she cursed the beasts, but I, I would love to know why she just, you know, found Maurice and nursed him back to health. So she's been announced as well as Catherine Zeta-Jones. She has been announced as joining the cast of National Treasure. This I'm totally on board with. Same. I, I mean, you don't see a lot of her anymore, which is a shame because I think she's ultra talented. And I think that th they're casting her in this role of being a billionaire who, that, who buys and sells antiquities. So like, I totally buy her in that role. I'm excited to see what she does with it. Same. All right, so it's Oscar time. We got nominations, which I know you are super excited to talk about. Yeah, I was really excited with nominations as a whole this year. I feel like they're covering a wide variety of films. I feel like you don't necessarily have those one or two standouts that are nominated in almost every single category. I feel like it's spread out again. I feel like we are trending back in the right direction. A lot of parody this year. Exactly. But I am very excited about the Disney nominations. Yes, this will come as no surprise to anybody because we talked about it at nauseum when we reviewed Cruella. It has been nominated for Best 
makeup and hairstyling as well as best costume design. And I think that we had said one of the aspects of the film that we enjoyed the most was the aesthetic look of it. So this should shock nobody. It's absolutely stunning. The creative team so deserves not only to be nominated, but I think that they they deserve to win. Yeah, agreed. Uh, and I think that they will have that slight edge because it's not just the punk rock look that got embraced or the glam rock look. It's that this technically is a period piece. So I'm hoping that that might curve them a little bit. Yeah. Uh, Shang-Chi got nominated for Best Visual Effects. Again, That should be no surprise. No surprise to anyone. Here's where there is a surprise, though. Best Original Song. Dos Araguitas from Encanto was nominated. It's not that the song isn't good. It is very good. But we're not talking about Bruno. Well, we don't talk about Bruno. And a lot of people are asking, why aren't we talking about Bruno? Well, I do have an answer for that. I feel like, first of all, this is not the people's choice. This, The Oscars are not a popularity contest. There is a board of of people that handle the nominations. There are Academy voters specifically for this. And... I, what I think a lot of people don't realize is that studios have to make submissions for their considerations. That's why you get things like, well, it used to be that DVDs were sent out right. to the people who who were in the screening committee. Now it's all digital for the most part. Yeah. Um, but Disney had to pick what they wanted to submit. And in the case of the song category you can only pick two songs by the same composer per film so like in the case of frozen you know the lopez's got the egot because they've done broadway they got the emmys now with agatha all along right and and they've got their oscars from frozen but um you know, I don't think it was a question of whether or not Disney believes in Lin-Manuel Miranda to get it done. Obviously, they hired him again after Moana. They put him on this. They have him on Little Mermaid. Um, that's where you could maybe get away with nominating more songs because it's him and Alan Menken. So if you're spreading it out, you could probably do more or two songs from each of them in that right. case. Uh, but anyway... Um, you know, nobody knew at the time they had to do their submissions the wild popularity that that Bruno was going to take on. But I think the question is, too, is it the strongest song in the film? And for me, that answer is no. It's catchy. It's a bop. Is it Oscar worthy? I don't think so. I mean, I think it is debatably the strongest song in the film. But I mean, of all of the songs that you can call to memory when you think about that soundtrack, this is probably not the one that comes to mind. And I think that's why everybody is surprised. To me, when you're talking about the Oscar nominated song, I, like when you look at something like let it go, that transcends frozen. You don't have to know where that song comes from to appreciate the message that it's sending. And for Bruno, it is so hyper specific to this film. I think that that's why it's not as strong when it comes to a nomination like this. For me, it would have been uh, uh, Waiting on a Miracle because yeah. that transcends Encanto. Agreed. 
Encanto also got nominated for Best Original Score. And I think it'll probably win that. I think I think it definitely stands a chance. It also got nominated for Best Animated Feature Film, as did Raya and the Last Dragon, which I think, again, doesn't surprise us. The question is, which one takes it? For the longest time, I thought it would be Raya, and maybe it's because this is gaining so much momentum that I'm kind of starting to wonder if it's in Kanto. Well, Luca is also in there too, but that is technically a Pixar. Right. But so, this yeah. is Disney pitting themselves against themselves, you know? Well, Luca's not going to beat either one of those two. <sighs> I don't think. I don't think. It definitely doesn't beat in Kanto. I don't know. We don't love Luca, but people do. But do the right people love it? That's the question. Right. And that's what's going to get answered on Oscar night. Uh, Okay, so we have a contest winner for a monorail radio t-shirt and a straw charm from our friends over at the Hidden Mickey Supply Co. Thank you for everybody that entered. The winner on Instagram is Clem Bums. I love that username, Clem Bums. Thank you so much for entering. We will get your shipping information and we will get that sent out to you immediately. Thank you all so much for joining us this and every week on Monorail Radio. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate us on Verbal or your podcast platform of choice. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Monorail Radio. We love to hear from you. You can email us monorailradio at gmail.com. And for links to everything related to the show, it is online at monorailradio.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monorail Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.